You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. With us right now is Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz, who serves as Associate Principal, General Studies and Co-Director of Machon Siach at SER High School in Riverdale, New York. She's a research fellow at the Shalom Harpin Institute of North America. She earned her Ph.D. in History of Science from Princeton University. Dr. Schwartz has spent more than 20 years in the field of Jewish secondary and post-secondary education. She writes and lectures widely about issues of contemporary importance in the North American Orthodox community. Welcome to the program. Full disclosure, Dr. Schwartz, my daughter Lizzie had you, my son-in-law Sam, and uh, so they appreciate uh, being in your classroom, and, and thank you for joining us on the air tonight. It's really a pleasure to be here, as it was a pleasure to teach both of them. I'm sure they're happy that we're talking about their exploits in their high school history classes on the air. <laughs> Exactly. So we're pleased. So there's a lot to talk about. We have time. We'll talk about race relations as well. But in a non-Orthodox setting, again, according to the polls, I think it was Ami magazine, that the majority of Haredi Jews and most of non-Orthodox Jews supported the presidency of Donald Trump. There's still a strong reservoir of support. Being in a non-Orthodox institution, how did you deal with teaching and dealing with the Trump presidency during the four years that he was in office. Yeah, so that was a, an evolution over the four years. We, like everybody else in the United States, was surprised by the outcome of the 2016 election. In the immediate aftermath, I think there were teachers who went into classrooms and spoke from the strong feelings they were having in the moment in a way that might not have been maximally helpful, and that caused us, as a, as a history department... What, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by what? That they were not helpful. Meaning teachers in the immediate after, if you remember the day after the election, colleges all over the United States closed down. They didn't have classes. They just had space for students to sit and process their feelings. And we as high school history teachers were in the classrooms at 9 o'clock the next morning having to figure out what to communicate to students and what to say. And sometimes people spoke from the intensity of the feelings they were having in the moment, not quite having processed through what would be the most educationally sound and helpful way to frame these events or this development for our students? And um, and we heard from parents and teachers afterwards, from parents and students afterwards. SAR High School, I think, you know, like probably a lot of places in the community, is a mix, is a politically mixed community. We're going to have to so, try to if you can raise your volume somewhat, because we're having a little difficulty hearing you. I'm sorry, my volume is as high as it goes. I will try to speak louder. Is this helping? Okay, I think maybe we'll just try to get you over the telephone. Um, uh, keep talking, yes. So SAR High School is a politically mixed community. We have students and families who supported both candidates in 2016 and both candidates in 2020. And we've had to think about how we make space for students to talk about their positions across a range of issues in a way that's also respectful and opening to hearing the other. And as a department, as a history department, we've had to think about how we teach these issues in a way that is honors the truth of what we know from our experience and background and knowledge and history that also honors the range of perspectives that students and families bring into the classroom. And figuring out how to navigate all of that has not been an uncomplicated thing to do over the past four years. And it's taken a lot of work and a lot of thought on our parts.
So I would assume that the students come from different backgrounds and some of them supported the Democrats, some supported the Republicans. How did the kids interact in the classroom? So it varied very widely depending on which groups of kids. There have been years we've had more politically active and engaged groups of students and things have gotten really intense and sometimes needed managing. And other times where we've had less politically active or engaged groups of students, and while they might have had their own feelings about it, it didn't come out in the same way in the classroom. And all of this, again, has been a lot of work for teachers to figure out, how do we manage this in a way that students don't feel like they're being suppressed or shut down for the sake of having, you know, no one can talk about politics in this class because it's getting too heated. Well, you know, in an American history or an American government class, it probably does have to be some way to talk about politics. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about and working with our students about how to create conversations in which there really is space for expressing wildly differing views without it turning into the kind of screaming at each other that you often see when you turn on cable news, which we were not eager to replicate in our high school classrooms. As a modern Orthodox institution, so what value? So we're going to talk about later on as well about the Trump a lot of people in the community support him. Even today, they support him very wholeheartedly. They feel he's done so much for Israel and for dealing with Iran and the economy. So there's a deep division in community, the general community, the Jewish community as well. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, so we have certainly experienced that deep division. Um, and... Uh, you know, there is a, there's a lot to say about that, one of which is that we try to get our students to move the conversation to a conversation about values. Because a conversation about values makes it a much easier conversation to hear each other than a conversation in which we're each reiterating whatever kind of talking points came down today from party headquarters. So if, if instead of saying, you know, Trump is this and Biden is that, if we say, I care deeply about the security and the well-being of the state of Israel. That's a value, and that's actually a value that people on both sides agree with, although they might disagree about how we most fully realize that value. And if we say the value is that I think people in the United States of America should be helped to achieve their potential and flourish as much as possible, again, we might strongly disagree about how we get to that value, but we agree about what the value is. There are on the margins people who are articulating values that we don't agree with, and that I don't think any of us agree with. And I think you're saying some of the challenges of teaching in these years when there's so much division in our community as an educator, as a school, how do you deal with it? What do you do? So there are things to do. One of the things that we discovered is that we as educators have to do the work to process our own and work things through and not just to react in the moment. There have been a lot of things to react to. And we found that if people just, you know, sort of went into the classroom like, oh, my gosh, this just came across my news feed, that was really not a good idea. And we took much more time as a department to think about and process current events, what was worth teaching in class and what was not, and how did we present it and how do we want to approach it. So that was something from the teacher side. And from the student side, we found it very helpful to ask students not to engage in the kind of blunt force political attacks, which they were hearing all around them and certainly picking up from media and social media, but instead to speak from and about values. If you say the value that I'm speaking from is concerned about the well-being of the state of Israel, 
then in fact somebody who doesn't agree with you about the politics might still agree with you about the value. Or if you say the value is that I want to foster an economy in the United States that helps as many people as possible flourish, then again, you and someone else might disagree about the politics about how we get there, but you actually are in agreement about the value. And so we sometimes in class will even do an exercise with students in which we ask them to identify the values basis of what they're saying and the values basis of what another student is saying, not to say that they don't disagree. Of course they disagree. But there are certain underlying shared values, and if we can talk about that, then we don't attack the other person like they're the enemy. But, but again, how do you deal with that? Because I know the passions are high among the parents where people and people on both sides of the aisle, if you're supported the Democrats, you're so anti-Trump. And if you're a Trumpist, you're so anti-Hillary uh, or Joe Biden side. So there is that discourse. I can tell you the only time at my Shabbos table where I almost had a fist fight was after the elections where I had a woman who supported Hillary Clinton and a gentleman who supported Donald Trump. And the Hillary Clinton supporter almost slugged the Trump supporter. <laughs> I never saw anything like that. And the and a nice, mild-mannered person in normal circumstances. But something about Trump has gotten Jews either passionately for him or passionately against him. I don't think there's any middle ground. There was any middle ground. So that's certainly, I think the kids see that, and it's reflected, I think, in, in how they act. Absolutely. When I talk to kids about this, I say that very clearly to kids. I say it's not that the grown-ups are doing this right and we want you to learn how to do this. I say to them, the grown-ups are all doing this wrong. And we're actually trying to get you to learn how to do something correctly that all around you, adults, whether, again, it's a CNN's lineup of talking heads or maybe it's whether what you see at your Shabbos table, adults are modeling doing it badly. And we make very clear to our students that this is something where the whole world right now is struggling with how to do it. And Trying to teach them how to do it is a heavy lift, and nevertheless, it seems very necessary, which is why we invest time and effort in working on it. Did it work? Um, it works in the classroom when we're there facilitating it. Whether it carries over into their other political conversations outside the classroom, I can't tell you. But we do manage in the classroom to get students to be able to hear the values underlying someone else's position and to have a conversation that's not just about, again, regurgitating whatever the official line of the day is. Now, school like SAR has kids from different backgrounds, some from Orthodox, modern Orthodox, some from conservadox homes, where obviously they may have different positions regarding the presidency. So did any of that come into play? We, we experienced a school community, again, that was really, that was divided, in which there was a strong, there were strong contingents of support on both sides. I'm not sure that we saw it map onto the religious backgrounds of the homes. I'm not sure that that's, uh, that that's a linkage that we've seen. Pretty much everybody in the school is coming more or less from within the same broad community. And as you've said, that broad community is divided over these politics. Right. Well, I think in the more religious and more Haredi community, there was, I won't say 100% support, but according to the polls, I think it was about 87% support of Donald Trump. Modern Orthodox community, I think the polls show a little bit less. Would you say, is that changed? Do you think that there, do you, are you sensing a different attitude today from a historical point of view from people that are after the, after what happened in Capitol Hill last week, that people are having a different perspective or are people still much staying to their positions? So that's, that's a great question and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but first I'll, I'll speak to what you said about the, the actual data that we have. I think it's very important in this conversation and my, um, my Rebbe in this 
was the lawyer, Professor Michael Avi Helfand, who's insisted many times in conversations with me that we can't make generalizations about politics from our bleichsvaras, from what we think from our guts, or from what we hear our students say in the classrooms, that if we want data, we need data. So it happens to be um, that Dave Wasserman, who does the data collecting for Roll Call and has probably the single best collection of voting data on the United States of anyone anywhere, released data for voting in Lakewood Township, and 86% of the people in Lakewood Township voted for Donald Trump. So that's not a poll. That, that's the actual count of the votes cast. So we know that, in fact, your numbers about the Haredi world, and remember, Lakewood Township has people in it who aren't Haredi, so you could only imagine um, what the voting in the Haredi world looked like. So that sense that the Haredi world voted overwhelmingly for Trump is at least borne out by the voting data coming out of Lakewood. I haven't seen the actual voting data for the communities that I'm in, in Upper Manhattan, in Teaneck, in Westchester, in Queens, in Riverdale, in the Bronx. I haven't seen those data yet for 2020. In 2016, interestingly, the communal discourse that I felt like I was hearing was more strongly Trump supporting than what the actual votes reflected. But my sense would be, my guess would be, and again, this is a guess because I haven't seen the data yet, my guess would be that in 2020 more of the community voted to support Trump, that there was a sense of recognizing things he had done over the past four years that the community appreciated, even if they didn't appreciate the tone, the way, the other things that came along with it. I do think that the events of January 6th shocked many people. I do think that the vision... Did it change their opinions? At all, in your opinion? So that's, again, an interesting question. And, again, I'm reluctant to rely on sort of a gut sense. But, but having said that, um, here is my not scientific and uh, kind of impressionistic what happened in school the next day. So, again, we as a history department were up half the night talking about how we're going to present this and how we're going to teach about this in a way that doesn't get us back into partisan politics but acknowledges what we as teachers of American history know which is that a violent mob attempting to overtake the Capitol to prevent the certification of an election is really a pretty big deal. And so what I did in my class the next day, I teach a class on American citizenship, and I spend half the class talking about how we come into this class not as Democrats or Republicans, but as citizens, and thinking about citizenship. And I showed them a four- or five-minute film clip of just excerpts from the events of the day before, and then I stopped it without, without analysis or interpretation or anything else. And I just asked the students what they thought and felt when they looked at that. And here's my totally unscientific data point. The first three students to speak all said the following. Either my family is a conservative family or a Trump-supporting family, or actually I'm 18 and I voted for Trump myself, and I voted for him for all the reasons that as you've cataloged, members of our community, of our modern Orthodox community supported him, but not this. I wasn't voting for this. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I voted for. This is way too far. Now, again, is that is that reflective of a broader consensus in the community? Sometimes something we see, and it looks like we may have seen this with this, is the initial shock, and then people sort of figure out how to consolidate their opinions anyway and kind of explain it to themselves in a way that it doesn't force them to think differently than the way they thought the day before. And so you see some people saying, oh, it wasn't really Trump supporters. It was really Antifa. It was really whatever else. It wasn't. Um, you know, in a way to be able to get back to thinking what they had thought before. So is this going to engender some long-term change in our community? We've seen your next guest wrote one of the columns. Um, Aaron Lopiansky wrote a column in one of the Haredi magazines. We've seen a number of different people within the community saying this should be an occasion for rethinking. If not rethinking the policies or the political support, at least rethinking the kind of absolute all-in commitment to a movement, which it turns out at the very least has some adherents, not all of them, not everyone. There were 74 million people who voted for President Trump. Plenty of them didn't vote for or support what we saw on January 6th. 
But on January 6th, we saw some pretty shocking things, and we saw some adherents of this movement who clearly are not our friends. Now, that clearly is the case, but what in the people in the Trump camp are going to say that it was a small group, you had a 100,000 people, perhaps that number, maybe a little bit less, that participated in the rally, a small group went, maybe a few hundred people, and did the damage, and which was terrible, and there's no excuse for it at, at all. Uh, but the question, though, is, though, does that reflect on President Trump and his movement? Um, that's the real question. And I'm hearing from a lot of people saying you got to separate the two, just like you have to separate the Black Lives Matter rallies where you had people that did damage and violence and looting from the average person that participated in the march. Okay, so I, I, that's a comparison that's being made a great deal. That And whatever one thinks, about the comparison in general, and we could talk about that more. Um, this was an attempt to stop the constitutionally mandated process of certifying a legally conducted and appropriately conducted election in the United States to prevent the seating of a duly elected president of the United States. So that's rather a different matter. And it took place, crucially, with the support of the sitting president of the United States. And that's where we can disagree about a ton of things. We can disagree about all kinds of different, and Americans do, right? Whatever it is that Americans disagree about. If we agree about the rules of the game, if the rules of the game are that you win elections, you get to do the stuff you want. And if you lose elections, well, that stinks. Figure out how to put your act, get your act together and win elections the next time. Then we can keep going. If you lose an election and the response is to say, well, we're going to we're going to not accept the results. We're going to declare that the election has been stolen. We're going to storm the Capitol um, and prevent that election from being certified. Then we're then we're in a rather different business and a rather more dangerous business. And uh, the person who said this on the Senate floor on January 6th was Mitch McConnell, who's hardly known as a bleeding heart liberal, right? He's the Republican leader of the United States Senate. Um, and he and uh, President Trump have worked hand in glove to accomplish all kinds of Republican priorities, who said, on, and he said on January 6th, if this is how we're going to respond after elections, then the losing side says we don't accept that we lost, so we're going to storm the seat of government and prevent that from being certified, then, then we're in a pretty bad place. And it doesn't really help if it's only a few thousand, I mean, if we're not agreeing to what the rules of the game are, then we're in a really bad place and arguing that it's only a minority. I understand that. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. The problem is that it was being encouraged by certain very, very powerful voices. Well, that you're going to, if you listen to conservative talk radio, which I do, and you'll hear a lot of them will say, Dr. Schwartz, is that the president said, let's march peacefully and with patriotism towards the Capitol, and you had maybe a few hundred hooligans that broke in, and I'm not sure if they had a plan. They broke in, but what were they going to do afterwards? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds like it was just violent hooligans. Maybe some of them had preconceived ideas what what to do, but didn't seem to be organized in any sort of way, um, so that maybe changes the picture. So you have a rogue group, and listen, the rhetoric that came out was, was strong. People felt that, even now, people felt the election was stolen and you talk to average people a lot of them the 74 million i would dare say that a good percentage of them really believe that and so there's a problem that this country is going to face where almost half the population doesn't view legitimacy the incoming president 
Right, absolutely. We agree that that's an enormous problem. The question is, how did that come to be? How did it come to be that some significant percentage of the 70 more, 74 million people who voted for President Trump think that the election was stolen? So I, I commend to your viewers to go and Google the following artifact, John McCain's concession speech in 2009. John McCain was the Republican who ran against Barack Obama for president in 2009, and he didn't win because he didn't win. And John McCain gave a concession speech that actually isn't particularly noteworthy in the sense that it's not really different than any other losing candidate's concession speech. And he said all the things you say. The American people have spoken. I'm disappointed by the result. And now we all have to come together as Americans and do what's good for the country. That's what John McCain said. You can find similar concession speeches from losing candidates every week. Well, I you know, every Richard, Richard Nixon, uh, from what I've been reading, and I have to study it more, it seems like, you know, he believed that the election was stolen from him, but he went ahead graciously and saved this fight for another day. And, of course, the best example of that would be Al Gore, who at the end of the day lost the presidency of the United States by fewer than 540 votes in Florida. That was the number. That was the margin that Gore faced in Florida, and whoever won Florida was going to win the presidency. It was nothing like the margins we're talking about, about 11,000 in this state and 20,000 in this state and 150,000 in Michigan. For Gore, it was 538 votes in the state of Florida, and it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court said it is what it is, and Gore said, okay. Gore said, when there, there were plenty of people, supporters of his at the time, who said that's not the right thing to do. You should take the streets. You should fight. You should this. You should that. And Gore said, this is the system. This is how it works. Um, and, he gra- and he gradually conceded. But we're living in different times, Dr. Schwartz. The time- but we're not living in different times. This didn't happen. Somebody didn't wave the magic wand and make us be living in different times. No, but the, we're living the, in time, different the tone times. is different today. Yeah, okay. Uh, who set the tone? There needs to be a, there needs to be a subject. And a verb. Who set the tone? I condemn everybody because the president felt that the Democrats were out to get him for the last four years with impeachment hearings, which he felt was a legitimate, the Russia probe, etc. So he represents, and again, it was a mutually feeding society. He fed his constituents and they fed him, where you have the situation where you have today where he was not conceding. I, I don't agree with it. I think he would be probably better off fighting for another day. Uh, right now, I think his president has been hurt and tarnished by what happened on January 6th, but there's an anger out there, which I hear a lot from his supporters saying that they've been trying to delegitimize him for the last four years and he wasn't going to concede anything. So the question is not about conceding or not conceding. There's no magic value in giving a speech that says, I concede or I don't. The question is, do you invest a great deal of effort in spreading lies about the outcome of the election? How do I know that the election results are valid? Because they were certified by the people in charge of counting the votes in 50 states and the District of Columbia. Plenty of those people in charge of counting votes were Republicans, right? We saw this with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, who's a Republican, who answers to Brian Kemp, the Governor of Georgia, who's a Republican. Raffensperger came out and said, I wanted Trump to win. I voted for Trump, but we counted the votes. We audited the votes. We recounted the votes. Biden won in Georgia, and that's the way it is. And then, of course, we know what happened after that, endless discussions of, you know, of just factually not correct things about dead people, whatever it is. And then they went to court 60 times. And the courts, including plenty of judges who have been placed on the bench by Donald Trump, the courts did not rule in their favor. So at a certain point, maybe you say, like Al Gore said, I think that the process was flawed or incorrect or problematic, 
but the American people spoke and the court spoke, and this is how the process works. Or you don't, and you just keep saying, even though there was no truth to it, that the election was stolen for me. And you're right, so then voters are angry because they have been told again and again by the President of the United States that the election was stolen from them. And that's very, very dangerous. Because if you believe that you can work through the democratic process, we lost its stank. That feels terrible. We have to work and gather our supporters and go out and try again and win next time so then you work within the electoral system. And if somebody really convinces you that the electoral system is rigged and you did win and it was stolen from you and you can't do it within the electoral system, then you believe that what you're supposed to do is march on the Capitol and stop the elected officials from going through the process of certifying the vote by force if necessary because you can't operate within the system. And you're right, it's very dangerous. But to talk about it as though this just sort of happened, people didn't get their belief that the election was stolen from nothing. Somebody kept telling them that the election was stolen. Right. Uh, the president and Rudy Giuliani uh, kept saying that because they actually believe it and they claim they have affidavits. And, again, it's a tough thing when not a single court supported them. That's, that's Right. So, and what's also interesting, I'll tell you, it's not just the courts didn't support it. When Rudy actually went into court, where, there's a, where there are real consequences for saying things that aren't true, where there are penalties for perjury and for lying under oath, where, they per, where he personally could face disbarment, losing his ability to act as a lawyer if he said things that weren't true, when they went into court, they sang a very different tune than they did when they were talking to the media. In court, they, they made much more modest claims. And in fact, one judge said to them, a judge in Pennsylvania, where it was one of the states they contesting the results, are you saying that there's enough fraud to overturn the outcome of the election? And they said no. And the judge said to them, why are we here? Even if there was fraud, if there was fraud in 250 votes and he won by 25,000 votes, right, then it doesn't matter if there was fraud. I mean, it matters. Obviously, we should deal with it. We should address it. That's not, you know, it's not going to change the outcome of the election. It happens to be they found three validated cases of voter fraud, three individual ballots that were cast fraudulently in Pennsylvania, three ballots. They can document were cast fraudulently. So three ballots, you know, fraud is fraud. It's terrible, but it's not changing the outcome of the, of the vote in Pennsylvania. And so when they were in court and there were potential consequences to saying things that weren't accurate, they say they said a very different tune. I'll give you another example. All the endless talk we heard about Dominion voting machines, Dominion, 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 and how Dominion voting machines were somehow rigging the system. It didn't matter how people pointed out that the counties in Pennsylvania that Biden won didn't use Dominion machines, and the counties in Pennsylvania that Trump won did use Dominion machines. You got everybody talking Dominion, Dominion, Dominion. Well, Dominion is a private company that needs to make money, and Dominion didn't like being talked about this way, and Dominion came out with their lawyers and sued a whole bunch of these people for defamation. And all of a sudden yesterday, you saw a whole bunch of, well, Friday, a whole bunch of media outlets that had been flogging the Dominion story, all of a sudden putting out very detailed apologies. What we said was incorrect. We were wrong to say it. We're sorry. The reason they're doing that is because now Dominion's doing the pants off of them and, and uh, has a very good case, so all of a sudden they're backing off of those claims, which is to say that it's just not the case. And, you know, again, you don't trust me, no problem. Go back and look at the statements that were made in the Senate on January 6th. Lindsey Graham, who's a very, very, very ardent supporter of Donald Trump, said in the Senate on January 6th, it's over, the election's over, we lost. Mitch McConnell, you can go down the line. James Langford, Republican senator from Oklahoma. You can watch all these guys. I think the mistake that the president made is once, you know, he didn't get anywhere in the courts, you just say, hey, 
I'm leaving right now on the high note, and I'm still around, and I'm going to run again in four years to support candidates who support my position. He would have been in a much stronger position had he done that, in my opinion, but uh, obviously things were different. Our guest is Dr. Rifka Preshwart. She serves as Associate Principal, General Studies Co-Director of Machon Siach at SAR High School in Riverdale, New York. When we come back, we take some of your phone calls at 212-769-1925. 212-769-1925. You want to email? Email is a wonderful way to have your questions answered. Zevbrenner at gmail.com. Zevbrenner at gmail.com. We're going to be right back right after these messages. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline Network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Our guest is Dr. Rivka Schwartz at SER High School. We're getting to your phone calls. Please try to be brief and succinct. Email is a wonderful way to have your questions answered. Uh, Zebrenner at gmail.com. Uh, again, our number is 212-769-1925. Let me read the email first, Dr. Schwartz. Uh, this, actually, Stephen writes, uh, he's an attorney. He writes, Dr. Schwartz completely ignores the large amount of evidence, circumstantial and statistical, supporting the election was stolen. Just the state's refusal to allow audits of the results raises a big red flag. No, they did not order the vote. No courts did not consider the evidence. They raised standing and lanches, and mootness is not to consider the claims. It needn't have been widespread fraud, only targeted fraud. I don't know if that there was determinative fraud, but neither does Dr. Schwartz. Okay, we can we can do this all night and like into next week if you want, if you find this entertaining, or we could not. But at a certain point, there is the following: there is no government, Democratic or Republican in any one of the 50 states and the District of Columbia that thinks that there was meaningful or, in fact, really any fraud in their state. There was no court that looked at these issues. Yes, they dismissed the issues. They dismissed the issues on on the various on standing and other uh, considerations because they said if there were problems in the election procedure, you should have brought these problems before the election. You can't decide there are problems in the election procedure once you don't like how the outcome turns out. If the rules aren't fair, then the rules aren't fair before the election. You can't decide that the rules aren't fair once you lose. We all understand the phenomenon of sore loserness. Um, but I will say to your attorney and to anybody else, part of the problem here, and it is a very real problem, is that if one gets one's information from inside a closed-off information ecosystem, if you only hear information from the people who are saying the things you want to hear and repeating the things you want to hear, then you're going to hear the things you want to hear by definition. 
and then you may not hear the things that are, oh, you know, true. Again, don't take it from me. Take it from the Republican governor of Arizona, the Republican governor of Georgia. There are plenty of Republican governors in plenty of states or Republican secretaries of states in plenty of states or Republican Senator Mitch McConnell or Republican Senator Lindsey Graham who are saying that there is no evidence that this has happened or, again, the Trump-appointed judges who've thrown this stuff out. It's just not true. I understand if you listen to Rudy Giuliani and Tucker Carlson and that's your sole source of information about the world, you're going to think that's true. And that's a problem both about these people being comfortable saying things to you that aren't true and they probably know perfectly well aren't true because Rudy Giuliani won't say them in court and the fact that he will not say them in court. Again, I invite you to go read the affidavits that were filed in court, Mr. Attorney, because I have read plenty of them and you are certainly welcome to read them. They are all available online. And look at what they are alleging when they actually go into court as opposed to what they're saying on TV. And this leads to a terrible problem. The terrible problem is that when you convince Americans that the electoral system has so broken down that they cannot operate within the system, they choose instead to go outside the system. And going outside the system gets us January 6th. Yaakov in Brooklyn, thank you for waiting your question for our guests. Yes, uh, so, so Dr. Schwartz, I want to back up from the politics a minute. Uh, because of a term I hear very often, uh, even on Zed Brenner with other guests, the term is modern orthodox. I, without being facetious, I really do not know what defines that, and I would like to know some of the basics that you would say are the definitive uh, boundaries of modern orthodox. For example, I would ask, uh, and without being condemned, condemning or asking for a defense, just, just be a generic question, does your school have mixed seating? Or other things that might define what is modern orthodox. How would you define the basic uh, differences? If by mixed seating you're asking if my school is co-educational, the answer is yes. If you're asking if boys and girls sit in classrooms together and learn together, the answer is yes. Um, as far as the definition of modern orthodoxy, I will defer to our host. If he's interested in having me uh, engage in it, I'm happy to. If you'd you, like you to keep the topic more focused. Because a lot of, uh, let's put it, a lot in the Haredi community don't know what modern orthodoxy means, and we haven't really done a show about it in a long time, so we can briefly explain what the differences are. <laughs> Okay, and I will I will say to you, I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in the yeshivish uh, community in Brooklyn. Um, I went to a Beisiakov High School and two different Beisiakov seminaries for a year each. Um, the reason why I identify as modern orthodox now is because at some point I went to secular college and then secular graduate school. And the learning that I did of the wisdom and knowledge and approach and way of thinking about the world that came from the outside world made me think in different ways about the community in which I was raised, about the ways I approach certain issues and think about certain things, and that approach that says that there what is out there and that we can learn what is out there and we can take what we learn from what is out there and we can use it to think about and illuminate and understand what we are doing here within our firm community, that to me is the essence of what modern orthodoxy is about. And if we say everything out there is sort of, you know, patooey and garbage and nonsense, or maybe it has some value but not enough value and it's not worth spending time on or it's not worth learning. Maybe I even grant that it has some value, but I think there's so much more value in here that it's not worth learning or engaging with the wisdom of the outside world. And so either it's, you know, either it's errant nonsense, there are probably some parts of the Haredi community that would say that, or it's not errant nonsense, it's just a waste of time. We could be focusing all of our time on more important things, and so I'm not going to engage with it as much as possible. I think that becomes the dividing line. Uh, um, and yes, yeah, yeah, I just say, go ahead, Yako. One thing, 
I, I came from a secular background. I attended uh, universities, uh, more than one, and uh, I am I am a, a student of astronomy and uh, and uh, and chemistry and philosophy. But uh, and I have not abandoned everything. But I I want to say that that studying certain things, certain people like. But my mind is that certain people are capable of it and certain people are not capable of it, as you say. Uh, so I, I, I want to say that not everybody that, that, that will go this way of the secular education will survive. That's what I want to say. Let me just say this, and we can do another program on orthodox, but in a nutshell, if I had to separate, the difference between orthodoxy and modern orthodoxy has to do, is, as Dr. Schwartz said, how you approach secular education, and also how you view the state of Israel in theology, and also how the status of women. These are, I think, I think three basic issues that may differentiate, again, the, the, the source is the same. It's the same Torah. You have to do the mitzvahs, the commandments, but the outlook and the synthesis of being in the modern world and the religious world at the same time is what separates the the two. But uh, thank you for a good question, Yaakov. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on to Stan in Forest Hills. Okay, Stan in Forest Hills. Your question for our guest. Go ahead, Stan. How are you, uh, Doctor? I couldn't agree with you more in your comments over the last couple of minutes. Uh, I take great, I want to ask you a question, I take great exception to what Zev Brenner said at the beginning, that to, to a large extent over the last four years, it was both sides. Absolutely not. For four years, Donald Trump has tried to delegitimize the Constitution, delegitimize the press, delegitimize the ultimate voting. This has been going on and has been lying for four years. It culminated with what happened last week. And to say that the other side did all of this as part of it is absolutely ridiculous. You know that the Democrats went after Donald Trump with hearings? They went after him for obvious reasons. Oh, not not because of that. He, over four years, had, tried to delegitimize segments of this government and, and segments try, and, of and, our country. And they didn't try to legitimize Donald Trump with the hearing? Only when, only when he did things in Russia. They went after him of that. Now, here's the question to the professor, to the doctor. When you speak to your students, did you actually tell them, ladies and gentlemen, the election was not a lie? The election, did, and did they, uh, for four years they believed, and they believed what he said. Did you straighten them out or tell them, it's not happened. It was a, a good election. It was fair and honest. Did you speak to your students in that regard and tell them the Bill of Rights and the Constitution say this and so forth? Did you reinforce that when you were talking? Because that may help. I'll let Dr. Schwartz respond to you. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's not for you. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. Okay. Let, let, her, let her have a turn. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Dr. Schwartz. It speaks, to what I said, it speaks to what I said earlier. Right. History teachers in a high school classroom to be careful and to be thoughtful and to be reflective and to make sure getting our own armchair punditry so that when we do say things to students which are, in fact, factually correct, know that we're telling them things that are factually correct. We said to students exactly what I've said here, which is that 50 states and the District of Columbia, where elections were controlled by Republicans and by Democrats, have certified these election results as valid. We said that in some of the states, they did go back and they did do audits as were requested by the campaigns, and the audits confirmed the original results. That happened in a number of states where the Trump campaign contested the election results. We absolutely said to our students that these are 
the, the actual and valid and accurate election results. And we also showed them film clips of Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and whoever else saying what they said. Um, but what, but the, the, um, what we try not to do, what we try not to do is communicating the level of, uh, of emotion that the caller communicated can be unhelpful. We have students in that classroom whose parents feel very strongly one way or another way, where the students feel very, students, by the way, don't always feel strongly the same way that parents do. And sometimes students form their political views in opposition to their parents' views. We see that happening. So parents have very strongly articulated views in one direction, and so teenagers do what teenagers do, and they form very strong views in the other direction. So what a teenager says to you in class is not necessarily an indication of what their parents think. Doctor, doctor, you teach truth. That's what teachers do. They teach facts. I suspect that you get any reaction from parents for what you told these kids. Your job is to teach facts and truth. And did you get any reaction by that from the parents? Did you hear anything from anybody in that regard? We get all kinds of reactions. We get all kinds of reactions all the time. I got one of the most interesting reactions I've ever gotten a couple of days ago when um, the, the person at the front desk in the office forwarded me a voicemail message that we got from the older brother of one of our students. The older brother had heard his younger brother talking about what his American history teacher said to him. An older brother was very upset about it, about what was being said in class. And so we just called, he's not, he's not a graduate of ours, he didn't go to our school. He called the school office and just left a message about how upset he was about how we were teaching or talking about the election and about politics. Um, so I called him back. I called this young man back and I said, hi, I got your message. I'd like to talk to you about it. So it was really interesting. First of all, he said, oh, yeah, I left that message in heat the moment. I'm sorry. It was a little bit. I said, oh, no, trust me. I've gotten much more agitated messages than your message. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but then we actually had a conversation about how we teach history and how we talk about history and the fact that history teachers who have more knowledge and more background might be bringing a broader view then, and that's our job is to bring a broader view than just what you saw on TV last night and to put it into context and to help you understand it. But at the same time, we are trying to, so that broader context and broader views is not giving my opinion or being a pundit. It's I know stuff about what happened in 1876 and 1877 that might be relevant to this discussion. And if my students don't know it, it's my job to frame it for them. And that's different than just giving my general, you know, sort of opinionating about things, which isn't super helpful because, or, you know, venting about things, which isn't super helpful because then it may diminish students' ability to hear me when I say to them, well, this is just something that's true about American history, and it's my job to tell it to you whether people love hearing it or not. And Keep teaching the facts, Ms. Schwartz. Right, You're Sam, doing good. Thank you for your call. Okay. Okay. And we're going to take a short break. Then Dr. Schwartz will be with us a little while longer. Dr. Rifka Schwartz, Associate Principal at SAR High School in Brook in Riverdale. We I didn't want to move you to Brooklyn to Riverdale. Our I'm from Brooklyn, but now I'm in Riverdale. So am I. Uh, you, good piece, by the way, on your one of your teachers a while back. I think it was in Ohio, one of the seminar. You had a really nice. Oh yeah, Robertson Osbond. Uh, absolutely, Robertson Osbond. Be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Talk Line Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. 
And now your host. Dr. Rifka Schwartz is our guest, a well-known educator, serves Associate Principal of General Studies, co-director of Machon Siach at SCR High School in Riverdale, New York. We're taking your phone call. Just a quick email before we get to our phone calls, Dr. Schwartz. One of our listeners wants to know, ask your guest if she agrees with Twitter and or Facebook removing Trump from their respective platforms. That's a good and that's an interesting question, and it's a little bit of a, of a nuanced answer, so I hope we can um, get to both of that, both parts of the nuance, okay? Part number one of the nuance is that clearly Trump has been posting things on Twitter and Facebook that violate their rules for a long time, um, and they have acknowledged that in saying that they make an exception to their rules for really important public figures whose statements, you know, are important for the public to know about. Forget the, you know, forget the election fraud stuff, which at some point they started putting slapping warning labels on, the use of such a powerful megaphone to attack individual people, right, which then sends, you know, an army of flying monkeys after them, um, would be a violation of Twitter's terms of service. If I did it, but if the President of the United States does it, so for a long time he got to pass. So in that sense, if we think that Twitter should consistently apply their rules, then Twitter should consistently apply their rules. Here's, so that's, that's part one. But here's part two. The fact that Twitter and Facebook, when they chose to do it, when they said we are now going to actually enforce the rules as they're written, um, because we're now worried that we're actually going to be inciting or potentially contributing, abetting the incitement of mobs that might want to kill people, um, once they were able to do that, they so quickly yanked the plug on him, I think should raise a lot of concerns about the amount of power that we're putting into the hands of private companies. This isn't the government. They are not bound by the First Amendment, which the government is bound by. They're not bound by much of anything except by their own decisions of their own corporate leaders as to whom they decide to give a platform to or take a platform away from. And so separate from the question of did they apply their rules in this case and should they have applied the rules earlier or later is a different than a really interesting question of are we well served by corporations getting so big and so powerful that essentially one corporation or two corporations can deplatform in significant ways the President of the United States? And does that make us think about what we feel about allowing corporations to accumulate this much power in this way, separate from the specific question of yes, Donald Trump or no Donald Trump? And I might add that they allow Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran and others, so there's there has to be a level playing field, and I'm uncomfortable with anybody being a censor. Um, because there's too much power and it's unregulated, and and they can stifle competition, and it's, it's wrong. It's either well, but we have to turn that around the other way because we don't think that when they are enabling people to post neo-Nazi or Holocaust-denying content, then we say take it down. So we have to be consistent. If we think there should be no censorship at all and no regulation at all, and everyone can post whatever they want, then Facebook can be full of Holocaust denial. But in fact, various Jewish groups asked Facebook to be much more active about taking down Holocaust denial. So we either have to decide that we want there to be everybody can say whatever they want, whenever they want about anything, and that means that Facebook can be full of Holocaust denial and, you know, Isn't and neo-Nazis. all about, even though we find the speech repulsive, reprehensible, that we do allow it to take place as long as they don't advocate killing or, or doing so, things which are... First of all, the First Amendment doesn't bind any of these people. The First Amendment says that the government can't do that. The First Amendment doesn't say anything about Facebook or Twitter or anybody else. Now, we could decide that we would like there to be a law that says that they 
but that's not the case of the law right now. The First Amendment doesn't bind any of these people. Right. So they're, only they're people bound. are bound only by their own policy. But they, 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 and again, we, with Holocaust deniers, they certainly, you know, have been taking it down. But I told a commander right. about the destruction of Israel. They don't take him down. So we can, again, that's the same exception that allowed Donald Trump to stay up. They made an exception to their normal rules for world leaders. You could say, I don't think there should be an exception for world leaders, and world leaders, if they take, say terrible things, should get taken down just like me. If I said terrible things, I would get taken down. But then you, it's not, ex I mean, you can be inconsistent, of course. People are all the time. But it's not exactly consistent to complain when Donald Trump loses a Twitter account for, I mean, Donald Trump tweet, I just want, I just want people to understand the timeline here. At two something on January 6th, Donald Trump wrote a tweet about how Mike Pence was whatever things he said about Mike Pence, that he wasn't supporting Trump enough because Mike Pence had said that he was going to fulfill his constitutional duty to certify the, the, the vote count and there was nothing he could do about it. At two something on Wednesday afternoon, Donald Trump put out a tweet about how Mike Pence, and then he said whatever insults about Mike Pence, but I don't remember Bob Pat, but you could go look it up. Not nice things about Mike Pence, about how Mike Pence is not supporting us and standing with us. At that moment, at two something, the mobs were breaking into the Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence. And if you maybe think that was a joke, they built a gallows outside the Capitol. So me personally, my sense of humor, I stopped finding that so amusing at about the time that a mob is rampaging through the Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence, and oh, they built it, right? Wasn't the news said during the rally itself, even before the Pence statements were made? I don't know when the news was there, but they built a gallows outside the Capitol. And, and people was there even earlier, yes. And people were, I mean, the, the argument that they were trying to kill people earlier, I'm not sure how that's exculpatory, no, but be that as it may. There, right. there, there, there's so, some violent terrorists, you can call them terrorists, you can call them uh, hooligans. Certainly there's some bad people that were at the rally. Uh, the look at the Auschwitz, say the Auschwitz T-shirt, and look at some of those uh, people that are anti-Semitic and hate Jews and hate blacks. Etc. He's a part of the group that was there, but there are a lot of decent people that were there too. But that's not. But that's not the question we're having. We're having, we're having a conversation about Twitter and about Facebook. Twitter, right. So should should Twitter take down world leader statements when world leaders say things that can lead to violent action? Now, again, people are perfectly welcome to be inconsistent about this. People are inconsistent about all kinds of things. But either you have to have the same standard for the supreme leader of Iran and the president of the United States. Or, you know, they could leave them both up because they're world leaders and exceptions or take them both down or something. But a separate question is, should we, in fact, have Jack Dorsey and whoever else is part of his brain trust off in California making the decisions about who gets to communicate and how? And that's a really interesting question, one that I don't think we've done enough thinking about now that so much of our communication infrastructure is in the hands of private companies controlled by a few really, really powerful individuals. How does that play out? And if we don't think that's a good idea, then how do we think? Again, and, and that's not a good idea because I don't believe it's too much power should be in Google and Facebook and Amazon and all these companies. They shouldn't be determining what's right and what's wrong because there's certain things that are clear-cut and certain things that are not, and they should not be given the latitude to make those decisions. And I think a lot of people are feeling this way both on the right and the left, and you might see some restraining of these big tech companies with the new administration, with both Republicans and Democrats, for different reasons, trying to rein in these big tech companies. We have a lot of people waiting to speak to you, so let us go to Yaakov in Brooklyn. He's waiting over 25 minutes. Yaakov, thank you for waiting. Yes, hi, uh, good luck. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, 
you mentioned that the, they didn't address the uh, concerns until after the election. Yes, I, I beg to differ. The president said countless times that the mail-in ballots leave, leave room for fraud and for um, you know uh, and for uh, things not going right. He said not to do the mail-in ballots. Nobody paid attention. Also, during the election. Uh, the uh, Democrats threw Republican observers out of their districts, out of the uh, places, and they plastered up the window so you can't look in. Does that sound like honest uh, counting of the ballots? Do we do things like but, that? But yeah, the problem is that, that these, these things have to be brought and adjudicated by the courts, which they haven't done so. That, I think, yes, can, I, can I address? I'm not done, because I'll let you talk in a minute. Uh, just that the courts didn't even address these things. And uh, they didn't take the cases. They didn't want enough people in America where it's fraud. Uh, also, the Dominion machines, the Democrats themselves in, in 2012, when they had primaries, they complained about the Dominion machines, that they're no good. And they were used in Venezuela. They were used in China. They, they have proven to be, if the courts would have taken the case, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Sidney Powell would have brought the Dominion machines to court to demonstrate because he did. Giuliani demonstrated how you cheat. They changed thousands of votes well, over to Biden. I'm, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Schwartz respond. This is proven. Good. You made your point. We have a lot of people waiting, so go ahead, All Dr. Right. Schwartz. Okay. I'm going to say this very quickly, Yakov. When I said it didn't raise the issues before the election, I didn't mean Trump on Twitter. That is not actually how we run our constitutional legal process. I mean, no lawyers went to court in Pennsylvania to say X, issue X, Y, and Z. I don't want to get into the technical issues that they were challenging after the election to challenge them before the election. They waited until the election came down, until after the results were in, and then they said, oh, wait, we don't like these elections procedures. At which point the court said, if you didn't like the elections procedures, you should have not liked them before the election instead of not liking them after the election. Twitter is not how we run a constitutional government. If they wanted to file lawsuits, there was a timely way to file them, and they didn't do it. And then they did it after. This is just, this is what happened. Now, I understand. It sounds to me from some of the things you're saying. I explained to you already. Dominion machines were not used in some of the counties in Pennsylvania that Biden won, and Dominion machines were used in counties in Pennsylvania that Trump won. This is just actual factual information you can easily find by going to the website of the Pennsylvania Secretary of State. The person who certified Pennsylvania's elections, who oversaw Pennsylvania's elections in Philadelphia, which is the most populous Democratic area of, of uh of Pennsylvania is a Republican. All this information is publicly available. I understand that if you get your information from a very, very limited universe of sources, which are all telling you things that they want you to hear, that some of these things may sound to you like they are not correct. I would strongly commend to you that you don't listen to me, that you go to the websites of the secretaries of states of the 50 states or just the five or six states you want to contest and look at what they say about the election. Sidney Powell can say whatever she wants in a press conference. She didn't make the same allegations when she went into court. And she didn't make them in court, presumably because there was more at stake for her, more at risk for her in making claims that were not accurate. None of this is, uh, you know, none of this is any particular liberal spin on anything. All this information is widely available. You can read the court filings. You can read what the secretaries of state, Republican and Democrat, said when they certified the votes. I understand that the President of the United States has been saying something different. And he's been sending Rudy Giuliani to stand outside Four Seasons Landscaping and say something different. But even Rudy Giuliani, when he gets into court, doesn't say that. Anyway, thank you for your phone call. We just, we please try to be succinct and to the point. Okay, let us go to George in Manhattan. Go ahead, George in Manhattan. Actually, yeah, go ahead, George in Manhattan. Yes. 
George, are you there? I don't know about George. Yeah, go ahead. You're George. Uh, go ahead. Ma'am, ma'am, hello. Yes, hi. Go ahead, yes. From, I'm not a Trump supporter, but uh, F. Lee Bailey once said, you can indict a ham sandwich. And uh, let's put it this way. Why didn't any court even look at these allegations since they, uh, Giuliani claims he had hundreds of signed signatures that can validate his claims? I'm, I'm not taking the side, but I think our generation, and you're probably part of my generation, we're so narrow-minded and one-sided that we don't look at a complete picture, but we want to remain a part of the crowd. Are you guilty of that? I'm not sure. I'm not in other words, in other words, the left wants to all think in lockstep as opposed like to I looking at saying, I feel like there's a certain point in passage. I keep saying Republican secretaries of state certify these elections. Oh, and judges, come on. Everyone, when you're dealing with politicians, you're generally dealing with whores. And you know that. Everybody wants to protect their... So it's Terry, I'm, 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 like, I'm going to let the, the doctor... Uh, okay, thank you, thank you, okay, thank you, thank you. Yes. I'm saying to you that Democratic and Republican governors, Democratic and Republican secretaries of state, Democratic and Republican elected officials, judges appointed by Democrats and Republicans, including judges who were put on their seats on the bench by Donald J. Trump, have all said with one voice that the election is done, it is certified, and the outcomes are valid. And you're saying to me that's marching in lockstep with liberals. I guess if you define everybody who doesn't agree with Donald Trump, including Republican governors, secretaries of state, Wait. and judges appointed by him as liberals, then it's marching in lockstep by liberals. But to me, that doesn't sound like marching in lockstep with liberals. That sounds to me like an absolute unwillingness to hear any evidence that disagrees with your prior convictions, no matter who it comes from. Susan from Because there are a lot of people it's coming from. Susan from Brooklyn, go ahead. Yes, uh, Dr. Schwartz, thank you for taking my call. I just want to say one thing. You state that you are in an orthodox, modern orthodox school. The students, I'm sure, have questions about policy, and some of the policies of the Democratic Party include uh, legislation was passed where you can abort a child up to the last minute. Second thing, in Congress now, you cannot, Democrats say you cannot use the term father, mother, sister, brother, son, or daughter. These things, and we know this as Orthodox Jews, are anti-Torah. So how do you reconcile, in your esteemed opinion, how do you reconcile teaching? Um, you have to expose when these things to your students, and also when you ask people what policies of Trump, President Trump, they don't like, they will say they hate Trump. Then you you pursue it further and say, but give me the policies. He cha he put the embassy in Jerusalem. So your point, he your helped point, the Israelis. Your point, your question is? What policy, do you teach policy? And also, how do you reckon? Okay, we got the question. I'm going to let Dr. Schwartz respond. I think it's a good and an important question, and it points to the fact that Moshe didn't come down off of Harsinai and say you should register as a Democrat or as a Republican. The, the, the views of the Torah and halachic approach to the world do not line up neatly with the approaches of either party. And that's the reason why it's important to talk to students about what's the issue and what's the value behind the issue. 
and not to act. But I beg to differ with you. Hold on, hold on. Let the Dr. Schwartz respond. Go ahead, Dr. Schwartz. Let's just pick the one. I didn't know if I was allowed to bring this up on your radio show, but apparently I am. So let's pick the one example of abortion. Okay. First of all, I just have to say, as a matter of American law, what you said is not correct. And again, I understand getting information in certain limited sources. Roe versus Wade, 1973, creates a trimester framework for regulating abortion and says that in the third trimester, states can ban abortion completely except to save the life or health of the mother. So the idea that there's elective abortion or that anybody, there's never elective abortion up to the end of the third trimester, that's not a thing. Second of all, halachically, halacha allows abortion to save a woman's life. I know, Doug, you could start talking about Ramosha and the Tzeliazar, I understand. Halacha allows abortion to save a woman's life even very late in pregnancy. So if, in fact, some of these more restrictive abortion laws were But this is not saving a mother's life. This is saying that the mother has... Susan? But, ma'am, I'm telling you that you're incorrect about the law, and you have been since 1973. That's not what Roe versus Wade says. So I understand you heard someone say that Democrats believe in abortion up until the moment of birth. I'm here to tell you that that's not only not factually correct, that's not allowed by the Supreme Court case that created a constitutional right to abortion. So again, if we're getting information in a closed universe in which we hear only what people who are hostile to Democrats say about Democrats, you're going to hear that. I'm telling you that's not what the opinion of Roe versus Wade What about this new thing now where you're not allowed to say mother, father? That's, that's been proven and it's been explain, shown and I exposed. We got you from the Dr. Schwartz, yes. What's more valuable is to say that, yes, there are ways in which Torah approaches to things are more consistent with the approaches of the more conservative side of American politics. And there are ways in which Torah approaches to things are more consistent with the more liberal side of American politics. And to have that conversation with our kids and to say, so we are all going to have to make value judgments about what is the more important value. When we Would you what, admit that the Republican Party is, they do not want to take God out of Hold the on. register. I'm, can I, I'm can I finish a sentence? Yes. I muted her. You go ahead. So we then have to say to our students that we live in a complex world in which there isn't one party that represents everything the Torah holds dear and one party that's hostile to everything the Torah holds dear. There are two parties that have a mix of things, and we have to decide. In some communities, they might say, I'll ask the Rub or the Rebbe how to vote. In other communities, the more modernist community, they might say, I have to decide myself which values are more important and which dictate how I vote. Understanding that there's no perfect party alignment that aligns with everything I think is a firm Jew. And then if you add to that the issue of the person of the candidate, right? I think there are many people on the more conservative Republican side of the spectrum who felt like Republican parties are much better, sorry, Republican policies are much better for reason A, B, C. And then there's the figure of Donald Trump who's an unsavory and distasteful figure for a lot of reasons. And do I think that outweighs his policies being better or not? Many people who find themselves on the Republican side of the aisle in our community have to think about that. And some of them decided one way and some of them decided the other way. And to say to our students, it's not like these are simple questions with obvious answers. These are complex questions that require thinking through, and we can talk about them in a way that's trying to understand them and not just yell at each other. Anyway, but thank you for your uncle. I appreciate that. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to have to have you come back because we have a lot. Of, we apologize when you get to your questions or your call. And obviously this is a passionate issue, so I'm sure. does seem like it is. And the chapter is not yet closed. <laughs> <laughs>
But the Dr. Rifko Press Schwartz, Associate Principal, General Studies, Co-Director of Mahon Siach at SER High School. Thank you. We've got to have you talk about modern orthodoxy. We've got to talk about uh, black-Jewish relations. We'll have to have you back again. So thank you for joining us. Really my pleasure. I'll be happy to come back. Have a good night. Good luck. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.